Uh, welcome to the podcast today, all the way from New York. So we're on either side of the continent at this point, from Vancouver to New York. We I have, hate doing the math on that time zone. That's troublesome. Yeah, we've got <laughs> Kenny and Tom with us, and we're going to be talking today a little bit about some of the rescues they've done and just their take on technical rescue in general. So I'll let them introduce themselves. Go ahead. We'll start on my left. Kenny, go ahead. Uh, Kenny Thompson, uh, everybody calls me Kenny T. I always say you'll know many Kennys, but only one Kenny T. <laughs> you can sort out if that's good or bad. Uh, I work for the city of Ithaca Fire um, as a career firefighter, and I'm also a paramedic. I like working EMS. I started uh, in this tech rescue business back in the late 80s with Jerry Smith doing uh, Tyrolians up in the Fillmore Glen State Park. Uh, when he come out from the West Coast and taught for California Mountain Company back in the day and um, learned a lot of basic stuff there and then uh, just kept it going and ended up in this career department where we end up doing a lot of rope work, end up in the gorges quite a bit. Right on. Tom. Yeah, thanks for having us. Uh, my name is Tom Basher. I'm a assistant chief in the city of Ithaca Fire Department in New York. We're in uh, dead center of New York State, upstate New York, in what's called the Finger Lakes region. We got a lot of wineries. We got a lot of beautiful waterfalls. And because of that, we got a lot of gorges. And uh, I've been uh, the training officer for a number of years. And uh, I own my own company, Meridian Fire Training Solutions, where we teach all aspects of firefighting and rescue. Uh, and we're both state fire instructors. We work for the state and help out as well. We've, we've met and worked with some of the best in our area for sure and you know like Kenny said I've been doing this about 25 30 years and I was taught by the best and uh, we've taken that and hopefully you know built upon it and kept up with things and hopefully bring it to the masses so that we can get more people comfortable with tech rescue and make them you know want to be in this field. Absolutely and it's interesting we do get a lot of feedback and you had mentioned it kind of in the preamble that we did offline here about uh you know, not everybody's New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or Seattle. For us, it's Toronto or Vancouver, where, you know, I'm working on a 200 person job. We're lucky enough to have a rescue. But, you know, a first alarm plus kind of taps out most of our department. And that's kind of the reality for a lot of the fire service in North America, not just the U.S. or Canada specifically, where, it's smaller jobs and you've got to kind of do more with less. And I think that's what we're going to be looking at a little bit more today. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely talking about how to get it done with the smaller companies, uh, reduced manpower and personnel and uh, still doing it effectively and in a timely fashion and getting it done safely. You know, the majority, there's about 1.1 million firefighters in America and, you know, the majority of them are not, in big city departments. And, you know, they often feel like, well, I guess if we're not in a big city department, we don't have to worry about that stuff. But I think it's quite the opposite. You know, you're all there is. You, you got to know how to do everything. You can't just run a pump or just carry a set of irons or just carry a can. You got to be able to do everything. And that's, I think, what's made us, you know, well-rounded over the years is we had to be comfortable with all facets of the job and we had to learn it. And then when we became instructors, you know, we had to teach it and we have to teach it over and over and over again. And you just can't help but get good at things through osmosis and then interacting and networking with the with the great departments around us and the people that we've met over the years and the knowledge base that we can share it back and forth. Boy, you know, I know right now if I had a 
it, a question or something that came up, I could say, look, I don't know, but I know a guy that does. And we can reach out to people and in minutes have someone getting back to us with the answers. And that's a big deal now. And we hope many people recognize it, that even if you're in a small department, you know, these skill sets can be learned and mastered with a little bit of practice. Right on. Now, you'd mentioned a call down a gorge involved in auto accident, a little bit of technical rescue, a little bit as well. Um, you guys just want to kind of go over that call and what had happened there? And, you know, did that change your views on anything in this regard? Yeah, it absolutely did. It was uh, quite a while ago. Uh, I'll get to the date right now. Hold on. Yes, indeed. Sandbank Road uh, many years ago. 2003. 2003, Bash says. So the car went over the embankment, into the gorge, upside down, uh, spilling kids out along the way, you know, college-age kids. Uh, we ended up having to do an extrication at the bottom of the gorge uh, to cut the kids out. And there was kids uh, hanging on the rock faces, impaled on rebar. Uh, we had to have two uh, rope operations going on, two separate ones, because uh, there was, you know, we couldn't remove everybody out of the same side. And it was all going on in torrential rain. Um, it was a handful. That was a handful. Basically, you know, elevator down on one area, elevator up on the other area. And it was kind of a, a high water mark for, for myself and, and for the department where we never practiced for that. And, and, you know, it kind of molded me in future for training saying, look, everybody loves to rappel off the tower on a sunny day and slide the rope or maybe do a pickoff. And here we are. There's five kids. They're all over the place. One of, them's one of them's trapped underneath the vehicle. Somebody's impaled on rebar and it's pouring rain out and no one ever, no one ever prepared for this. No one ever thought of this. And, you know, had you thought of that, people would have made fun of you, you know, at the training, you know, like this is never going to happen. And here we are looking at it going, Ooh, this is going to be a long day. And because of that training, it forced us to think outside the box and, and rig things and, and put things into place that we hadn't done before and seeing what could be done. And because we knew the breaking strengths of our ropes and our prussics, and we knew what things could handle, we did things that we had never done before and we were able to be successful and we had the right people there. Uh, you know, many, many of the guys from that job have retired now, but you know, Lieutenant Malin Irish is, is literally cutting these kids out of a car with a, with a hacksaw because we didn't get the tools down there right away. And we had people, the police department came and you know, gave them a quick crash course because they know how to repel, but they don't know how to go back up. So we had to quickly give them some lessons and it got us out of our comfort zone. And from there, we kind of grew and realized there has to be more than one way to do things. And just because it's not the way you saw it once doesn't mean it's not right. There's many ways to do things. And from that rescue where all five kids were brought out and all five kids lived, um, you know, we, we, we grew quite a bit that day and we've learned a lot. We've, we've kind of honed our instructor skills off of real life lessons like that, as opposed to just PowerPoints or, you know, just sliding the rope on a sunny day, because that's not the way it always is. A couple of questions in regards to that. How deep was that gorge? So it wasn't so much that it was a, a sheer gorge. It was a, it was a, like, uh, where they were dumping years and years of road debris so it was probably about 180 feet down to the bottom, and it was more of a low angle scree than a sheer drop. But because they dumped concrete and asphalt and rebar, 
it was like a Dukes of Hazard episode. You know, <laughs> there, there was somebody watching it from behind it. This, these kids launched into the gorge and somebody luckily saw it. It was a volunteer firefighter who called it in. He couldn't believe what he saw. And it launched into the gorge and went down and just rolled. And as it rolled, it just dispersed kids out the windows and out the back. Um, so it was about 150 feet or so. But, you know, we got down to the first kid. I was working on the first in engine and, and we rappelled in and I got to the kid. and He was in bad shape. I couldn't go any further. I had to secure him. So from my rope, we, we you know, we quick, did a quick butterfly and then someone anchored off of me and rappelled into another direction. And, you know, things like that had never been done before. But because we understood what the knots were designed for, yeah, you know, for us in our area, it hadn't been done before. So because we understood the knots, because we, we, we trained and learn things the right way, we're able to adapt, which I think is an important skill in what we do. It's not always going to be a sunny day with one victim. Um, you're talking, you have to take tools down. And a lot of people think, you know, oh, I'm going to use my rope rescue skills. I only put people on the end of the rope. Obviously, you're going to have to put equipment down there. And I think you might have alluded to it with the breaking strengths. What kind of tools and equipment did you have to haul down there with you? So early on, it was it was literally hand tools. It was it was hacksaws and whatnot. But eventually, we did get a power plant down there, and we did get some cutters down there. Um, and again, it was almost more challenging because it wasn't a sheer drop; it was a low angle scree. Whereas when we practice, like we talked about before, that the extrication from above, gravity's in your favor, and it's not hard to lower a tool down, even with a munter hitch, you know, just to get the tool down to somebody. But it was a challenge. And because of that, you know, it was an exhaustive day, but we grew from that day. We learned a lot. And uh, I really think it was one of the, the high watermark for us to begin turning a corner into the rescue world of, you know, it's got to be more than just the basics. It was right definitely, it sounds like it was a, the way you describe it may sound like it was a real shallow, low angle, but it was, you know, you still had to be on rope. You still had to repel. So, but the busted up concrete and rebar everywhere, it was challenging to get down there for sure. A little industrial scree perhaps. Um, it was a mess. Yeah, it was just a mess. What are the two biggest takeaways that you feel as a department and as, you know, rescuers, as firefighters that you took away from that call? Like one each perhaps? Well, I mean, just the, it's happened a couple times. In, in my career where, uh, you know, the call comes in and the dispatch information is like, wow, just like Bash said, I've never, I hadn't considered it being, you know, of such magnitude from that particular incident. That's, you know, I had never seen, uh, as he said, an elevator down and an elevator up, two sides operating um, simply because we needed more access points and, you know, two things going on at once, hoisting people out and people repelling in and all that going on simultaneously. At that point, uh, the department had exhausted their resources and uh, that's where I got in. I hadn't uh, joined the department yet. I was there as a paramedic, but like I said, I've been doing rope work for a long time and I approached the chief. I was there as a medic. I said, listen, you know, I have rope experience. I was trained by Jerry Smith, who also happened to train that chief. So that rang a bell with him. He's like, okay, this guy's not full of baloney. And, uh, you know, he said, get a harness on and get in there. So that was how I kind of made it involved in that particular rescue. But that one sticks out in my mind. And then the one with Cargill, you know, 17 people trapped in a couple thousand foot deep mine shaft at the salt mine, you know, 
17 people, that, you know, it was overwhelming just the thought of it. So that's, that's what it was for me. It's like, wow, there's no upper end. There's no upper limit to how crazy it can get, I guess. Uh, so being able to adapt on the fly and that's, that's what I walked away with. Yeah. Just before we swap over to you, Tom, we'll get to the, the salt mine in a second. So you're basically saying is expect the unexpected. That's the biggest thing you took out of there. Uh, is that correct? Would you say? Yeah. I mean, uh, I, it just, you know, here's a career department and having been in this department now for however long, 13, 14 years, I don't think that we consider on a day-to-day basis of hooking the paramedics up and having them repel into the gorge. It's just not what we do. Uh, so, I mean, that was, that was kind of out of bounds, but they had to do it, you know? So, uh, yeah, ex- expect the unexpected for sure. That's what I walked away with. And how, just a side question, how big is the department? Like how many responders did you have to that incident? Well, a normal shift is a minimum of 11. Max is about 15. The department's about 70 people. So, you know, four shifts, you know, you're going to have 11 people. The first, there was three of us on scene for the first few minutes while we started getting, getting, you know, forces to bear. Uh, So we're not a very big department. We're big compared to some and we're tiny compared to others. And that's kind of the message we want people to know is we're, we're not a huge department and yet this stuff happens. It's shocking. I mean, I've got eight, 10 scrapbooks of incidents that have happened over the past couple of decades. It's unbelievable. And it's, it's, you know, it's shown how valuable a, a good trained rescue department is. And I think one of the things I took away to go back to your question yeah. was that the training is so important and you may not even realize why, but you're picking up things just through osmosis. You know, even if you are just doing one basic drill, you know, if you're practicing your knots or you're putting a prussic on the line or you're, you're practicing some sort of rigging, it may not be the exact same thing that you're going to do on the call, but those tools that you're building, those tools you're putting in your box, they, they could be adapted. So every time that we come up with a scenario, even though it may seem, well, this seems far-fetched, it, it doesn't matter. We're challenging you and, and you're challenging yourself so that when it does come up and someone's not whispering in your ear, you're doing it wrong or you need another wrap or you need to lock your carabiner. That was what made us successful that day was the people that taught us had taught us well, but they weren't right next to us. You had to make hard decisions. And that's what we try to instill in all of our students that we work with is you need to make decisions. You need to understand these things so that when it's to you, you can say, yes, this will work or no, this won't work. We need to do something else. And taking that away from me really helped. Yeah. And that's an important point. And I think it's not really, you know, published or explained or discussed that much is when you send those rescuers over the edge, the decisions they make, you spend, send them in a hole, the decisions they make, there's no incident commander, there's no operations officer, team leader per se. You've got a team leader that might be a firefighter and, you know, maybe two firefighters in the space or down at the bottom or more, but they're making those decisions on their own. And a lot of times there's no one to say, oh, hey, your carabiner's unlocked or I wouldn't do that. You, you've got to go on your own volition at that point. Right. It shows why it's so valuable, you know, to, to really observe and, and absorb the information and be ready to do whatever because you don't know what's coming down the line. What kind of, go ahead, Kenny. No, go ahead. You, I was cool. going to say, what uh, duration? Do you remember the duration it took you for to get those five kids out of there? It was about four hours, I bet, when it was all said and done. I, I can check. It was about, it was, you know, a good 
it was went well past the shift. You know, it was it was a busy afternoon for sure. You think it was that long? I think it was. I think it was. It's been so, a long time, but I I would say I it seemed like that because of the hurricane rain that we were getting. It definitely seemed that long. I know that I did a, a pick off right off the right out of the gate quick and hoisted the, the kid up, and uh, that was the first victim up out but then the rest of them were much more challenging than that for sure now you also run ems through your firehouse just so that people out there can kind of get a, a picture of what this looks like sure. engine company ems you know we're bls first response even though we may have paramedics on the unit there we're, we're uh through the state we're a bls first response we don't have ambulances here no paid ambulance a professional ambulance runs with us in the city we run about five thousand total calls a year on average we cover, you know, Ithaca College, Cornell, the city and town of Ithaca. Uh, so about 100,000 people, give or take, when the students are in town and about 30 square miles, roughly. Okay, excellent. Yeah, it just gives people a bit of an idea that, you yeah. know, this can happen anywhere and you need these skill sets available. Now, you'd mentioned something about a salt mine. And it's, uh, I mean, there could be the odd joke that's thrown out here about salt mines, especially with perhaps my age and maybe the uh, chief's age there. But... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's interesting. There are plenty of things happening between there that uh, don't get as much notice as uh, Sandbank Road and the and Cargill Salt Mine. Um, but yeah, those were the two biggies. I mean, we do lots of rope work here uh, on a pretty regular basis. But the salt mine was that overwhelming one. It was that was at night. It was in, I think it was in January, and it was, so it was 18 degrees outside temperature. Uh, they had 17 miners trapped in this 2,300-foot mine, vertical mine shaft for the salt mine, and uh, they weren't hurt. Uh, the elevator, the elevator shaft is made of metal, interestingly, in a salt mine, and it eroded away and failed, so basically it was a stuck elevator. It was 750 feet down. <laughs> and one of the problems was the spool, two-inch cable that lets the car down. Uh, there's, a, there's a device on there that tells the winch operator that the spool is still operating and things are okay. okay. Well, the car came to a halt and the people in the car were like, huh, wonder why he stopped us from moving. And then somebody noticed the two-inch cable whizzing by the elevator car at 35 miles an hour it, it rolls out really fast and they see the cable whizzing by and they're like uh aren't we hanging from that apparently not but it failed and the the steel underneath had broken and the elevator car come to a halt and this elevator car is huge i mean obviously it's got 17 people in it they can haul vehicles in it in and out of the mine uh and then they called up on the phone and got them to stop the winch but by then it spooled out you know it, it the winch had already spooled out another thousand feet. So that was just a you picture of two inch cable and an extra thousand foot of it in this mine shaft is just a ball of yarn. It's just, you know, tangled up and it's on top of the car and it created a lot of problems. And one of the problems was there's air moving in the shaft as ventilation to the mine. So it was very cold in there. So the guys were getting hypothermic. Uh, there's a lot to deal with. It was, it was a, I want to say an intellectual challenge. You know, we it, the neighboring department where this happened called us. We rallied at our station, got the equipment we needed, and we headed up there. But 
I got to tell you, it was it was a mind bender. Like, how are we going to do this? We don't have 700 foot ropes. You know, our longest rope is 300 feet and we can join ropes together. We know how to do that. We can pass knots. We know how to do that. But, you know, I remember stories from art, art instructors from way back. I remember stories from the Willis Sheldons and the Joey DeFranciscos telling stories about when they used to repel in the old days and at FDNY, they would repel in the World Trade Center tower before it went down. And there was a story that they used to repel inside the elevator shaft for training and they'd have to open the door every 10 stories or so and spray the bar racks with water to cool them down because the friction was creating so much heat. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, you know, I don't know what these, the, the Petzl ID was fairly new to us at the time. And, you know, how much can this thing take if we're moving that much rope through these IDs? Are we going to have to cool them off? Are we going to have to, you know, stop and let things cool down? And it was just, uh, a, again, an intellectual challenge. And, you know, the takeaway from that call, and I want to say is we did nothing we did nothing, but for 10 hours, we brainstormed and had plan B, C, D, and E ready to go. And the right move was to wait for the crane to sh for a crane to show up with a rescue basket so that you could move six to 10 of these guys at a time. Because, you know, you know what it's like to, it to, put an, to put an older gentleman in a harness and hang him from a rope and haul him up. We lowered gloves and heating pads down to them and we timed it to see how long it would take it. We were going to be there for hours and hours hauling each victim up. That's not the best thing for the victim. That's not the best thing for the patient to be sitting in a harness for that long in a, in a 10 degree mine shaft and pitch black situation. So we, we wanted to do a lot of things, but we wisely waited for the right thing. And we, we bought some time and kept them warm. And a crane came and lowered a rescue basket to pick half the crew up each time. And that was the right thing to do. At the end of the night, we were exhausted mentally. We had everything planned out. We had, if that rescue basket wasn't going to fit, we had plan C ready to go. We were going to drop in and start picking them off one by one. And we were going to tie our ropes together and, and haul them all the way down to the lake where, you know, get one long pole if we had to. Uh, you know, those were the things we were thinking about. We had neighboring departments coming from as far away as I think Bath. They were going to bring 600 foot spools of rope to help us out. You know, so we networked a lot after that. And we learned a lot about, you know, coming up with game plans and Yep, you can do this, but is it the best thing for the victim? Should we do this? We don't need to over-engineer sometimes. Maybe it's taking too long. We shouldn't do that. Or maybe we need to wait for the right equipment. And if the patient is stable, sometimes that's the right thing to do. We learned that that night. I think it was a good lesson. You bring up three really interesting points there. One is networking with neighboring departments and understanding their capabilities and response times. Uh, number two is understanding your equipment. If I roll... 750 feet of rope through a Petzl ID, you know, what is that going to look like? Am I going to be glazing rope? Am I going to be melting rope? You know, have you done that sort of stuff before? And I really like the last part there that you bring up, which is the multiple plans. And we try to instill this into people all the time about a plan A, a plan B, a plan mm -hmm. C. And sometimes it's not the sexy plan that everybody wants to do that works. Sometimes it's the best plan and it might take another couple of minutes, but it saves so much more time down the other way. Yeah, I agree. I think there's that fine balance between, you know, common sense, keep it simple. And get bullied by the situation. And then also saying that ain't going to work. We need to be a little more creative now. And, you know, that comes with years of 
practice and training and every class you can take, every job you can do, you're going to take something away from. And, and you know, the more the people do this craft, this art, this, this thing of ours, the better they'll get at it. We want to encourage people to do that because we got to retire someday. You got to retire someday. We want that next generation to be confident and capable, not that someone told them to do it. And that's why they're doing it. They need to know how and why. We want thinking rescuers, not just mindless drones. That's another really good point. You want to make sure that the next generation of rescuer is, you know, there to step into the shoes and, you know, better than what you left is what you want, right? Better than Agreed. you. Um, so you've talked a lot about training and training ideas. I know you're one of the first to throw cars over the edge and do some vertical extraction and things like this. Um, <laughs> That's a sweet spot. Yeah, now it's, you know, commonplace. It's almost like, you know, all these drivers out there have been driving around going, hey, I know the firefighters are training for this. So maybe I should give it a shot now. Hang my yeah. foot on the side of this bridge. Um, <laughs> but uh, what were some thoughts just on training? What do you found that, you know, works the best and some stuff that maybe not works that well? Well, I mean, uh, when we, when we... <laughs> <laughs> it's a sore subject, but I'm going to throw it out there just because it's funny. When uh, when the cars were leaned up against the department's rope tower, uh, that didn't go so well. <laughs> he didn't really want those cars leaning against the, it might not have met the engineering specs. So we got those off of the tower pretty quickly, uh, but still, you know, still approached that training. And, uh, and then similarly, we, you know, we did the program here off of the Ithaca Tower. I mean, our department has our own rope tower, uh, obviously, and it has a net on it, like under the bridges up in Cornell, so we can practice net rescues. Um, but, you know, I mean, that was kind of the first introduction to the rescue from above, repelling with first tools, you know, separate lines for the tools and for the rescuer. And, um, and then it was duplicated at uh, New York State Fire at the Advanced Tech Rescue Seminars. They, uh, did the same program up there so we've seen it a bunch of different times and uh, yeah it's a little sore subject no doubt there is a there is a thing on google earth there is a shot of our training tower with the cars leaned up against that i took a lot of heat for that uh but it was still a great class and we learned a lot and you know the thing here you know here's a good takeaway the things we thought were going to be challenging how to rig a tool and balance a tool so you can cut in midair weren't hard at all it really wasn't hard at all. It, it, the challenging thing was work positioning, getting someone to secure themselves somewhere where they could push and pull and manipulate a tool on a vehicle in that weightless environment, in that hanging environment. The tool, we spent time rigging the tool and that turned out to be just fine. The gravity found its center, it plumbed out and that was no big deal. It was a one-handed operation. But work positioning to get you in a spot where you need to be was the challenge. And we that was the best lesson we learned from that, from that incident, at least, was to, to practice how to get yourself in a spot where you can work and having adjustable work positioning lanyards or something on your harness to get you where you need to go so you can work. You're almost pushing into the rope access world a little well, bit. I'm right? hearing it. I'm hearing it. <laughs> We're on the tower now. We're 400 foot up on a, on a com tower. You're talking work positions. Yeah, for sure. But, you know, for, for the training side of it, you know, I, I was taught very well by some incredible instructors. And then I kind of took that and went with it. And I share my ideas with other guys. And I, and I we, you know, I don't want to say we steal ideas, but we absolutely, you know, we say this is this person saying or this is this person saying. But we, we find a way to 
give the information to the students so that they will remember it. And whether it's how you wrap the prussic, you know, and how you clean that prussic oh, up. To him. It's your it's your can thing. Everybody loves. We it. often tell them that the trailer park girls go around the outside, so that when you're wrapping your prussic, the bar or the brake must it up, must go on the outside and work its way back in. And and you start singing that, and everyone laughs and smiles. But at the end of the day, it's been burned into the student's head, and they're uh, you hear it all the time. Like trailer park girls go around the outside, and they go. They yes, they do. And dress the prussic up nice, and, and they're inserted. And they're, they're, they're successful. <laughs> so whatever whatever you can do to, to absorb the information so that when it is 3 o'clock in the morning, when it is pitch black, when it is pouring rain, you remember to do the basics right. The advanced stuff is very good, but boy, the basics are so important. And honestly, you know, we've done the advanced stuff. And one of the things that frustrates me personally is I took Spanish in high school. I can't speak a lick of Spanish. I spent years in Spanish class. I can't speak Spanish. Whose fault is that? Is that my fault? Or is that the teacher's fault? Probably a little of both. But the reality is if you spend time with somebody, they should be able to replicate what you're teaching them. And if they can't, I don't know, is, was it worth it, you know, or are they at that level yet? So, you know, keeping things simple, you know, you, you had Cliff Freer on uh, a while back and, you know, just to watch his mind work and how he can simplify things, you know, that, that was really helpful. Uh, a Lieutenant out of Rochester Fire, Adam Zebrick, same thing. He's incredibly intelligent and yet he shows it to you in a way that makes sense. Those are those people now that next generation that have come up and, and kind of taken the helm and started running with it because we were all taught by these great instructors and we're finding different ways to deliver the message. You know, there's all kinds of new technology, but the basics have always stayed the same. And it's really valuable to find a way to communicate to the student and the student to retain it and to actually replicate it without you there. Um, I do have to intervene on that and go, we can't you leave Cliff's name out like that. I have to give him some dig. I mean, we're talking about a hazmat guy for Pete's sake. I know, right? <laughs> but he does walk on the ground that I worship. So. <laughs> um, love you, Cliff. Um, so you mentioned a few of these items and it's, you know, I'd like to maybe drill down on a few of them. Creating an environment or a training plan that enables to break it down to all of the people in the class, like all of the rescuers that are taking it. Is there some sort of trick or techniques that you found more useful? Have you, um, there's kind of a two-part question. We've been talking, we're doing this for a few years. Have you found that trainees have changed and those techniques need to change more now or the old techniques still work? I, I definitely think specifically speaking from where we are and what we do here in Ithaca, uh, these techniques are older style stuff compared to the high-end things that we've been involved with, you know, tower classes or, you know, your uh, just shy of four mil lightweight. Uh, your last podcast, you know, the lightweight system is propelling on a shoestring. Uh, our, we're still using half inch rope. I mean, we're using the IDs and that sort of stuff, but we still kind of approach it from a little bit older style. You know, I, I reference it to like cell phones, you know, uh, the rope industry is now like 5G, but uh, many places are still, you know, 1G into the rope stuff. So we're a little bit, probably a little bit 
in the middle there as far as old school versus new school. But we still get it done. You know, we're in the gorgeous a lot of times. And I've been to a lot of trainings where I'm looking at cool stuff and I'm thinking, wow, this is awesome. But I'm never going to show this to the guys. And I'll definitely never suggest it in the gorge because they will throw me in there. You know, and there's a balance. Like, we we have to decide should we replace all of our stuff because someone came out with a new technology or do we dance with the gal that brought you you know are we gonna stay with half inch rope because we've got plenty of it and it works and we're good at it and that's the kind of a a challenge for if you're starting a brand new tech team by all means look at new technology and, and make sure you're using the best product for what you have for your hazards but for our people, they're very comfortable with, you know, using half-inch rope. So introducing even the ID and hopefully the maestro and the, and the clutch, you know, we're going to be able to do that and introduce it that way. But there's nothing wrong with it. It still works. And, and people need to know that if they still have equipment that works for them in their situation, they're doing one rescue a year. Maybe that makes sense to just be good at that and not spend all of your budget on brand new shiny things when you have other things that you need to take care of. But going back to the, the you know, the teaching, the, we definitely see the students change. I definitely see the millennials, this new group of people don't seem to have the hunger that we saw maybe a decade ago with the students that wanted to take every class known to man. But there's still some shining stars. There's still some standouts. Uh, and that's probably because the generation you know, has so few standouts that when you see one, you're so impressed with it, you know? So I, I, oh boy. I, I do. I put a damn disclaimer on this podcast. <laughs> That's getting deleted. One of the techniques, one of the things that we do do is we use great instructors. You, you can't just have anybody delivering this information. And, and I say that with utter respect to the people that are excellent at the skills but you also have to be able to deliver it to the people. So I know great firefighters that are excellent pump operators. They're excellent firefighters, but they get very frustrated and they can't deliver the message to a, to a student. They just get pissed off and they say, just let me do it. And you, you've seen people like that too. I still want them on the fire ground. They're my go-to people. But when you're talking about teaching the next generation, you got to have the right instructors with the right demeanor and the right knowledge, the right street credit. You know, you can't have just read about it. You can't have just seen it on a PowerPoint. You have to have street credit. Yeah. The YouTube rescuers, which is a great tool. It's a great resource, but you got to back it up with street credit. And a lot of times, like I think we mentioned before, you know, whether it's good cop, bad cop, you have that instructor that's so knowledgeable that they're almost over the heads of the, some of the students in the room. And, and you don't want to dumb it down for those kids that are getting to that advanced level, but you also have to spend time with that person to bring them up. So having multiple instructors, good instructors who can say, hey, I can tell you're not getting it. I can see that look in your eye. Why don't we come over here and I'll work with you for a little bit and bring you up or that person that's getting bored because they've been there before, then you bring them to the side and show them something new. And and that's the balance. It's having great instructors with a well-balanced ability to deliver the material, I think is a huge, I don't want to call it a trick. It's a, it's a technique because it's important. And and you know, I mean, working with the people, if they don't get the message, what's the point? You know, we got to be able to deliver it to them and find a way. I see people like see an excellent firefighter and they, they work with them for 10 minutes and they go, look how good that guy is. I'm a great instructor. That doesn't make you a great instructor. 
work with somebody who struggles really hard and make them good, teach them how to be good. That makes a good instructor. And that's frustrating sometimes. So it takes, it takes the right person to do it. And when you find those people, keep them close to you because they're excellent people to have on the team. What skill sets do you deliver to your department? I mean, if you're doing, you know, a lot of rescues, you're in rope on rope a lot, you're in the gorges. Is it part of the basic training when they come on the job? Is it a specialty? And what does it look like? Well, I mean, when they, they're walking through the door, uh, before they even go to the academy, we're hitting them with, you know, all the thing, you know, the trailer park girls go around the outside trying to teach them ropes and knots before they even go to the academy to get rescue tech basic. So we want them, uh, and, and there's a degree of expectation when you, when the back of your coat says Ithaca on it, that you're going to excel at rope work. So we definitely, and I, by we, I don't mean necessarily me, the training officers. I mean, I'm just a firefighter, but um, they teach them early on a lot about ropes, the basic stuff. And then when they come back, yeah, before they get released to shift, they're on the rope tower. They're doing basic repels, you know, just learning all the basic gear components. And then they're doing pickoffs. And then, you know, at some point we'll show them. Uh, and and it, we do a lot of rope training in a year. I mean, a lot. When the weather breaks, that is uh, all the folks are training we do it. We do it a bunch of times because it's an essential part of this department. So they're doing, you know, they're getting out the high directional, which at this department is a Larkin frame. Yeah. So we we like the Larkin frame, but um, and that was, you know, Willis got that for us. He was ahead of his time with that thing. A little, I think a little bit, but uh, you know, they're they're doing various different uh, pickoffs and use of high directionals and. Um, you know, we don't get into spread or at a level stuff for sure, but we definitely show them uh, a top-down approach. We show them ways that we can, you know, if we got a window washer hanging, we can release them from the top without ever sending a medic line down. You know, we approach things from a lot of different angles, but we certainly try to keep it as simple as possible. We let them know that what's expected of them. And, you know, obviously not everyone is comfortable on rope, but in a small department, you don't always get to pick who, who shows up and who's at the edge. So we want everyone to, to make their best attempt to be comfortable on rope. But if you're not going to be the person going over the edge, then you got to be damn good at rigging. You better understand anchor points. You better understand how to get somebody out of trouble and how to, how to be a part of the team. So, you know, the academy gives them basic rope. We work with them before they go to the academy, like Kenny said. And when they get out, you know, we spend a week on ropes. We spend a week on pumps. We spend a week on ladders. You know, we really dive back into it so that they're comfortable when they get on shift. But even then, you've got to keep up the skill sets. You know, it, it is absolutely something that can be perishable if they don't practice it. And, you know, we're supposed to do a confined space rescue drill once a year. That's ridiculous. You can't be good at anything once a year, you know, and, and the reality is that's where people get hurt and killed. That's those are the numbers. Statistically, that's, you know, 60 percent are the rescuers that die in confined spaces. I think that's important. We better train on that a little bit more than once a year. But we tend to do stuff like repel off the building because it's sunny out and we try and impress on people that I know we just did this a few weeks ago, 
But that's why we're doing it again so that it's fresh and you can build upon it. It seems to me you do three of them, you know, inside of a month or two, it, it sets in better than doing one a year for three years. For a, a simple example, you know, just out of the blue, we two o'clock in the morning, we get somebody fell in the gorge. Uh, so we've got a, I call it the, the hybrid because hybrid vehicles are quite popular. And I think it turns out it's the hybrid rescue. You got to repel into the gorge and then it's a swift water operation down there to get the kid who fell in and he's on the far side of the fast moving water at the top of the fall Creek at the waterfalls. So you've got to repel in, do the swift water thing, get them back onto the side and then hoist them out. Uh, and you never know necessarily who the players are going to be, what shift is going to catch that. Um, so that's just a, an any time that might pop up around here. So we try to kind of train them for being prepared for anything and not being surprised. It's, you know, there ain't no 912. There's <laughs> nobody else for us to call. It's just us. So we have to be well-trained and we have to be able to adapt and overcome and build things for the rescue at hand. Um, do you use the NFPA JPRs as a base for the training? We do, you know, the, the basic training that in New York state will be RTB or rescue tech basic. And we follow that, you know, we shoot to the 1006 standard, the 1670 standard. We get them to that level of NFPA so that they can work as a team. They can work as an individual. The reality is each person brings up to the table a little different and you know i'd love to say every shift will have four people that are trained in rope tech one rope tech two and in our state it's not realistic unfortunately so we have to give everybody the basics and then hopefully each shift has one or two people that are very very competent that can run the rig and if not we call people in off duty to come in and help out we're we're almost always listening and as i'm sure like you said you got home and then you, you got tapped out for something we you know we're always listening so if something's going on in our area we're aware of it and we're ready to go help if we can now mutual aid wise do you utilize mutual aid much with other departments or other agencies that do rope skills and do you cross train or discuss with them when you buy equipment to make it mutually beneficial? It's interesting. You know, our, our city is kind of the anchor of the county and we're surrounded by volunteer fire departments around us that they have the same terrain that we do. A few of them are trained in rope rescue and they will get in there and sometimes handle it themselves. Sometimes they'll call us for backup. Other departments they're able to maybe get a medic line in and they'll get down to a victim, they'll secure a victim and they expect us to come get them out, which is good. Other departments, they have they have nothing and they will just call us and we'll head out that, that way and give them a hand. Um, but we work well with our neighbors. They just know that, you know, we're the go-to when it comes to rope rescue. Um, other than, you know, the, the Cargill mine incident was the first time that we really reached out to to far away departments to say who's got longer ropes and people really answered the call. And from that, you know, we, we realized that we should be networking more and we should be training more and we should have, you know, county-based teams where there isn't an anchor department capable of, of doing it. And I think we've come a long way from that. And, uh, you know, again, the, the world's become smaller with social media and hopefully, you know, rescue worlds and training people will come further from away and work with each other so that they can share each other's skills and take them back to their agencies. That Cargill thing is interesting. We we did that and shortly, it wasn't long after there, I did a little class in San Diego for Firehouse World that was about ropes. And I went up and met with, there's a, right here in Ithaca, there's a, a, a SPRAC company, a 
they basically have uh, level three um, evaluators there. They're top notch and they go all over the world and do uh, all that stuff. And I went up and talked to them about the Cargill salt mine job. And, you know, they've got 1500 foot, 1200 foot, uh, 716, you know, 11 mil, whatever ropes in bags, they're ready to go. And, and I just asked them for their, how they would approach it. And it was just funny. They're like, eh, I don't know. I probably, that's, that's a ways we're going to be hoisting to be. Yeah. I probably, probably use a fatty, a half inch, <laughs> use a fatty, go down and hoist them out. He's like, we're a lot, we're a lot better. Uh, the fire service is probably better at rigging than, than uh, some of our folks, but uh, for hoisting, but I just, I, I looked at it from the brass side of things, how they would handle that Cargill salt mine as well, just to get their kind of take on it. It's kind of interesting. And they do have the long, the super long ropes, which we do not have. Right on. Now, privately, you own a company and you work as a firefighter. Do you find an overlap in the training? Like, are you primarily teaching firefighters or is there other rope rescue discipline technicians out there from different types of agencies that you're running training for? Well, all of the above. It's funny, when we got into it, the reason why we started it was we were sick and tired of going to the same crap over and over again, you know, <laughs> sitting through OSHA classes and sitting through, you know, somebody reading you something off of the screen that they never did. Somebody telling you something they saw a picture in a book once. And, and we were, we were grown adults and we'd experienced all these things on real world calls going, this isn't right. This is, this is so wrong. So we started the company hopefully to do more advanced stuff. You know, we enjoy doing the, you know, the extrication and the, the bailing out the windows and the rest rescuing down firefighters. The reality is we do a 50, 60 OSHA classes a year and CPR and first aid. That's, that's the backbone of the company because everybody needs it and nobody wants to deliver it. And those that do are dry and boring. So they call us to do it and we go and do all this stuff. But because of that, we thought we would just train some small fire departments. We train bigger companies now. We go to industry and we work with them. Um, you know, crazy things I never would have thought where we branched out and we've learned about industrial rescue and how they do things. And it's very, very helpful. A buddy of ours, Steve Disick, owns Capital Tech Rescue down in Albany. And, you know, he, he made a, a career of, you know, the confined space art form. And it's impressive what he's done down there. We've taken that model up here and we've done kind of a more broad stroke of all things rescue just because we have enough instructors with enough knowledge base that if somebody's really good at pumping and drafting and have the ability to deliver the message to the student in a way that they understand it that's valuable so we, we do that and if we can go and do that for rope rescue or confined space rescue we do that and honestly if there's things that we don't do we say no. We we're not going to teach you how to do getting guy out of the corn grain because we haven't done that. You know, oh, yes, you have, sorry, you have, but uh, in general, you know, we we don't do things that we're not comfortable with, and we only teach stuff that we have done or willing to do. Um, and and that being said, you know, there's not a lot of people doing any of these rescues every day, so the only way you can get good at it is to practice it and hope you never need it. Hopefully, you never have one of those crazy calls, but when you do. Boy, there ain't nobody else to call but you, so you better be ready. Right on. Well, we're pushing close to an hour here, so is there anything else you guys want to bring up or add into the conversation? Uh, you know, I think I really appreciate what, what you're doing, and I appreciate that 
there's a different medium to share the information that it's available to people. And, you know, people don't have to agree. They can disagree. And you know, we, we follow the, the social media blogs and we see all the comments and you can't do that and you should do that. And why are you doing this? It's crazy. But to, to spend the time to talk to the different people on the different parts of the country, you know, we had no idea when we were younger that the West Coast did things differently than the East Coast. We just were told one thing and that's all we knew. And now we're being able to learn so much more to listen to tree guys, the arborists, the way they do things. We teach the scalers. There's a crew here in New York state that goes into all the state parks and knocks off all the loose rock every spring. And we've worked with them and to see those guys one-handed on a bar rack, sticking a pike pole into the rocks and able to pop a bar and add a bar. It was incredible. And to see the, the way they beat the hell out of their equipment and you got some kid who's petrified because a half inch rope has got a little bit of a soft burr on it thinking that it's going to fail and these guys have got shell cuts through this thing and their their bar rack you could stick a, stick a screwdriver through it it's been worn through so much <laughs> to see all that stuff over the years has made us i think well-rounded and and more comfortable in the equipment and to be able to train people in a way that we can make them confident and comfortable as well. And we, we appreciate what you're doing and we appreciate what the other instructors that taught us did. And we hope the next generation will be able to replace us and be even better than where we are at. From my perspective, I mean, I really love the podcast that you do. The You get some really high end stuff, uh, you know, the lightweight systems, whoo, that got, you know, I, I love the one part on there where, I'm like, yeah, these guys could hula hoop in a Cheerio. You know, they're repelling off of a shoestring. But let's see. And then he said, oh, the last guy that went, he weighed, what, one of your guys, he weighed like 280 or something. I'm like, now you're talking. And we're, we're on slide number seven. We've only tested it to five. I'm like, now you're talking. So I, I really like the exposure that you give to everybody. Uh, but from our side of the fence, you know, I have to say, I've been to a lot of high-end training by some super smart people, Clifford, and then uh, others as well. But we keep it basic here. We go into the gorges a lot and, and we get it done. So it doesn't always have to be spread high rata and grimp games. It is just uh, the basic gear with a good solid understanding of tools and equipment and you can get it done. Not taking anything away from all no, those, no, those entities, no, but I think I'm smarter than I'll ever be any day. I think a lot of people get you know put off or get scared because they don't have a, another certificate under their belt when it really is some some down down good old boy down rigging, you know, being able to just put it together and make it happen and know this will work, this is safe, and I'm gonna make this work. It may not be the the best way, but it will work. And we want to give people options, and we hopefully are able to do that in the stuff that we teach. And we're always learning ourselves. We're absorbing information all the time. And we appreciate what you're doing. And we, we love being on here with you. I know we're not the high-end people you may be used to, but boy, we, we, <laughs> it's been fun. No, we are bottom dwellers. <laughs> uh, no, it's been fun. It is, uh, it's a military saying we used to use. If it's stupid, but it works, it's not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> love it. So... I thank you, gentlemen. And uh, with that, we will sign off. Thanks so much. We appreciate it. Much obliged.